Greetings programs and welcome to the 12th episode of the relaunched Awesome Friday movie podcast. My name is Massey and with me as always is Simon. How are you today, Simon? Hi. Um, well, I <laughs> just to expand on the, the conversation we just had, really, really tired. <laughs> really super tired. Well, it turns out when you have a number of major life changes happen all at yes. the same time. Yes. Uh, that will make one tired. I mean, who knew? So, so context, I, I, in the last nine days, I have sold my condo and bought a house, including all the legal uh, hoops that that involves. And um, let me tell you, <laughs> I am very glad I have an organized wife <laughs> with a note, <laughs> notepad of things that needed doing. I honestly don't think I'd be able to do this if it was just me. I don't think I'd be able to do it. There's so much to it. And that there's so much cost involved that I'd just be renting my whole life. Like I can see that absolutely. But um, I mean, we're in. Yeah, that's. I mean, lots of people rent their whole lives. It's, yep. it's in this country they do, not in my country. So God knows, I don't know how these people do it. But the um, the this does mean in a month just over a month we're moving to a really nice area with lots more space and a media room slash podcast studio slash movie theater whatever we want to call it when it's done um so i'm very excited about that but it's been a it's been a week of uh bidding wars and negotiations and then inspections and then uh sorting out all of these problems and then handing over huge amounts of money so um so yeah hopefully next week maybe a little quiet this sounds incredibly adult (laughs) it really does and i was talking to your wife about this earlier today because we we hung out today like real people in the real world we went to the the whitest of the white spots which was lovely and then we went to watch back to the future with the vso and And, the uh, symphony orchestra playing live vso and uh, for those of you who don't live in, in BC, White Spot is a restaurant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> White Spot's like, uh, is it not Canadian? Like all across Canada, White Spot. Is it just Vancouver? I didn't know that. Uh, I think it's just BC. Oh, there we are. So um, it's burgers. It's burgers and fries. But everything's really tasty, like good. It's really mm-hmm. nice. Really dependable. And I was talking to your wife about this, I, this feeling of having to be an adult when mentally you're not quite there <laughs> like, mentally we're probably still pirate pack age which is 10 or lower but, um, <laughs> but life has decided that we have to be more adult so yeah it's it's a little tricky it is how are you though how are you doing uh i'm also tired because i have a full-time job and a full-time course load at school and also i'm covering two film festivals right now and making time for this podcast so what? I don't have children, but I, I will sleep when I'm dead, sir. And this is your second podcast today as well, isn't it? It is. I guest starred today on the ContraZoom podcast, which I'll try and link in the show notes. Uh, I don't know cool. the, when that episode is going live, but we did a preview episode for the Vancouver International Film Festival. Oh, excellent. Speaking about what some films we're looking forward to and uh which simon and i will both be covering this year yes <laughs> starting from the they're not a sponsor but they run from the first to the 11th and yes. highlight the best in both canadian and international film i really enjoyed this last year uh, that was my first year covering a film festival that was actually my first ever film festival mm-hmm. um that i covered and i really enjoyed it 
and I've discovered through Viv and all the other ones that have come since some really standout movies that have really stuck with me. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, there's a lot of those this year. But for now, uh, here on the Awesome Friday Movie Podcast, we are going to speak about two television series. <laughs> uh, and also, I misspoke. This isn't the dozenth episode. It is the 11th episode. I counted. Oh, okay. So getting a, little, getting a little ahead of ourselves there. Yeah, but either way, you know, we crossed the milestone of 10 episodes last week, and we didn't remark on the occasion. So Ooh. I'm going to say that it was a good thing. You know, at some point, we're... we're this is going so like well. You're just gonna take reboot off and just this is just us. We're, just, we're back. Yeah, well, that's why I call it the movie podcast and not the relaunched podcast. Uh, oh, okay, I like it. Uh, but anyway, staying on point because we're very professional. Uh, oh, this gosh. week we're talking about the new Star Wars thing available on Disney Plus, Star Wars Visions, which is a series of animated shorts by prominent anime Japanese animation studios. And from there, we're going to move on to the newest Mike Flanagan Netflix series, Midnight Mass, which, spoiler alert, we both loved because it's great. Um, but we're going to start with Star Wars because Simon is a Star Wars super fan, and I think it's pretty good, too. And also, we probably have a lot less to say about it. So, so, so just to give you an, an idea of a couple of things, that we are going to start with Star Wars Visions. Um, just a little preview of how good Midnight Mass is. I really can't wait to get past the Star Wars section to talk about Midnight Mass. So, it's true. But, but before that, the I have to admit, when we saw the trailer for Visions, I was very, very excited um, at the prospect of these uh, Japanese studios having the freedom to do their own take on Star Wars. And for the most part, the ones I've seen anyway, have been all interesting in their own way. But you can hear I'm not, I'm not going crazy over them. Like, what do you? What's your take on it? Like you've seen them all. I've seen four. You've seen. I think there's nine. Is that is that right? Uh, yeah. So there nine, is uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yes, there are nine episodes. Right. I've seen the first four. Uh, and I think they're from seven anime studios. I think two. Of the, if I remember correctly, two of the studios did two episodes each. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And I think that they're incredibly well cast. And I think that a couple of them are really beautiful. And I think that none of them really explore anything new or interesting other than aesthetically in the Star Wars universe, which is what I sort of basically always hope for in the Star Wars universe now. So I think they're really good looking and i think some of the cast is incredible and i think if you like star wars you will like them and um that's 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 pretty much the extent of my take about star wars visions to be totally honest they're good you should probably watch them there yes done and done (laughs) (laughs) to expand on that i i find my reaction to visions quite interesting because it's um out of the four i've seen three have been lightsabers and jedis versus sith and they wait been... so which ones have you seen i guess is uh, a good the, question the first four so the twins is the second one i've just watched the fifth jedi which is the fourth one the, the duel the, which is the, um... the the first one yeah that's the duel and the rock music one that the the band one is the third one right i think but the um 
for the most part, like, let's start with the jewel, like the very, very first one. So it really embraces, I mean, Star Wars has got huge roots in Japanese cinema anyway, and samurai cinema. And it really, really digs into that wandering Ronin idea and uh, the, the, the anti-hero or the, the dark hero protecting a town kind of idea. And visually, it's pretty incredible. So you've got a bunch of uh, maybe stormtroopers leftovers. They're, they're sort of these disenfranchised ex-Empire stormtroopers who are now this roving band of uh, thieves, thugs, basically, led by a Sith. And there's one guy who is, turns out he's not a Jedi, but he certainly knows how to use a lightsaber. And so visually, it's fantastic. Like, And there's some really good design ideas that you've never, that, haven't been done before in terms of um, lightsaber hilts, in terms of um, the sort of the equipment and usage of the lightsabers, and it's all done very stylishly. But at the end of it, you're kind of left with, well, that's a it's another lightsaber battle. It's just a really fancy lightsaber battle, as is the twins. Um, Yep. I find I find the the rock. What, I can't remember the title. There's one where the uh, oh, the fifth Jedi is is kind of interesting in um, the design elements. Uses a lot of um, things that I really really liked in terms of speeder bikes and the direction of the the fifth Jedi was really fantastic. Like gasp out loud, fantastic. Some of the action scenes, but it's still about some Sith trying to get some lightsabers and. There's a big lightsaber battle, and he's oh yeah, 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 the and, uh, the ninth Jedi. That's what it's called. Ninth Jedi. Oh, I yeah. lose track of how many Jedi, and it's all very good. It's really, really good. But that, the, one, the one that, that one, that one in particular, the ninth Jedi one, actually really feels like um, felt to me like the pilot for an ongoing series, <laughs> more mm-hmm. so than the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fair, and that's not exactly a complaint, but it's not exactly praise either. It felt mm-hmm. very set up-y. Yeah. There's one where, with a kid who's in a rock band and he he sets out to protect the, I think the bassist in his band, who's basically a, a hot relative yeah. in the in the crime family who doesn't want to be part of the crime family. Starting to get some interesting ideas. Like you talked, God, years and years ago about, right, okay, you want different Star Wars stories? Let's, let's have a Godfather style story, but it's the huts. It's like the huts rise to power. And I, you may have been joking, but... It sounds good to me. And this was kind of the only one I've watched that kind of explores something outside of here's some some people on one side, here's some people on the other, and they're going to hit each other with laser swords really beautifully and stylishly. But I don't know. Is that fair? I, I, in the rest of them that I haven't seen, so the latter half, are there more deviations from classic Star Wars? No, no, uh, not, not really. Um, my two favorites would probably be the first one, the duel, which is the really gorgeously what looks like woodblock animation duel one between the that you mentioned. It's like a dark hero uh, defending a, a town against a Sith who it does, to be fair, have a really cool lightsaber that's basically a war umbrella. <laughs> a very um, angry umbrella. And I think my my actual favorite one though is one from the toward the end. I think it's the seventh one called the Elder. Um, which I don't think you've seen. 
uh, but it's set in a place in a time when the Sith have been eradicated and it's a, a Jedi and a young Padawan and they encounter um, a dark, like a being called um, the Elder who was a Sith who left the order before it was destroyed. Uh, and they have a like they have a lightsaber battle and it's fine, but they also have a nice little philosophical battle and it's short enough that it doesn't overstay its welcome, but it's it's pointed enough that it gets its message across, I think better than some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm sort of the thing about this is that I'm sort of the wrong audience for this kind of thing because I'm not actually the biggest fan of anime. There's very few oh. anime series that I've legitimately connected with through my career as a that. dork. Um, I can really count, I can count on one hand the number of uh, anime series that I have like legitimately connected with and loved. Mm. Um, and and honestly, as much as I want this to be one of them, it's just not. Uh, and you know, to your question, was I joking when I said, let's tell stories like The Godfather, but with the huts? No, I'm not joking <laughs> about that. It's honestly, at this point, I want them to do as different a story as they can with Star Wars, with the Star Wars universe. And I think that, you know, Clone Wars occasionally did a pretty good job of that. And I think that Rebels occasionally did a pretty good job of that. But they're just, we're just never going to get away from lightsabers and Skywalkers, are we? It's just. It's interesting you say that because the um, there's been a lot of discussion with the sequels as to what makes the Star Wars. Like, what are the essential components of the Star Wars? And I think it's no secret that we both love The Last Jedi. Many people don't. They, they're wrong. The <laughs> Last Jedi is a fantastic movie. But the in The Last Jedi, Ryan, um, Ryan Johnson t- takes the, the what makes the Star Wars and, and keeps all the elements and is actually really, really faithful to all of the little character cues in so much of the original trilogy. And it really becomes apparent when you rewatch the original trilogy after watching The Last Jedi. In terms of, especially in terms of Luke's character, but anyway, he takes lots of like one of the components of Star Wars and incorporates them, but in in new ways. It's like using the same chords in a new way. Well, and, and also, the Last Jedi is one of the only films that really tries to not just advance the plot, but to push the philosophies of Star Wars forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like to move things forward in interesting ways. So, I mean, sure, yeah. it's Skywalker's and lightsabers, but at least it's talking about more than just the sort of yeah for lack of a better word the very basic storytelling of the originals not that they're basic exactly but like they're very archetypical right yeah yeah uh and the last jedi strives for something much deeper and i mean honestly i think it's successful and i know lots of people don't like it for that but they're again they're wrong so so i i think in terms of the future and what you're describing there's a lot of cues that the the Star Wars universe could take from Rogue One, I think, which is a, a very, very short on people hitting each other with laser swords, apart from one notable moment. Um, but it, and one so, so notable keep, but completely shoehorned in moment too. Um, yeah, it was, it was, but it's a crowd pleaser, and, and you're not going to escape that. But the 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 rest of the movie, which is basically a, a heist movie with this bunch of people that don't really even like or trust each other. Uh, I mean, it's it's as an adult, it's probably my favorite Star Wars story as an adult, and that's a really weird thing to say because it's the one that has the least elements of the Star Wars I grew up watching. Except it's got all the 
the the heart elements, like the the meaning of the original Star Wars, is the, still the meaning of Rogue One, but they just discover it in different ways. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's so much scope. There's so many stories you could tell in this huge galaxy, um, in the like Rogue One did, like just go on a tangent and just find a pocket of a story that that just where one thing happens, and it doesn't have to be connected to the greater story the the the, um, the, uh, the what do you call it uh, the scope of it like the consequences of their actions can be smaller can be more self-contained but it showed that you perhaps get a different directory get a different kind of approach in rogue one doesn't start with a crawl it doesn't start in in with any similarity to the rest of the star wars movies and from that first moment where the planet appears and that amazing st- um, score by Michael Gian- Giacchino. Thank you. That that spike at the beginning tells you so much that this is going to be different. And not everyone's going to like different, but many people, many, many, many Star Wars fans love Rogue One for, for, for uh, to different levels. I adore it, but... Um, I think what it shows is that you've got you've got the standalone story that can exist outside of this other continuity. Yes, it is connected to uh, New Hope, of course, but the majority of the movie is completely different and separate. And there's this so is, much we could do with that. This is similar to you know the all of the best episodes of the Clone Wars TV series are the ones that deal with the clones specifically. You know, and their story being soldiers for the Republic, it's obviously they are connected to the main goings on. But the the best episodes and the best elements of most of the episodes are the ones where the clones are establishing when you're getting to see into clone society, basically, when you see how they interact as soldiers and as brothers and as clones, but separate from having a Jedi and, you know, how they deal with themselves, how their own internal society works and it's super interesting mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean i think what i want from star wars is kind of an impossible ask from star wars at this point yeah. i think star trek is doing a better job of that but star trek is the series that right now the best star trek on tv is the one that's actively making fun of star trek so <laughs> yeah and, anyway, so more about. and honestly lower decks isn't even making fun of star trek it's obviously made with a lot of love and it's definitely mm-hmm. making fun with star trek but mm. it's definitely doesn't shy away from making fun of some of the ridiculous shit that happens in Star Trek. Mm. No, totally. Absolutely. Like in the second season, a character comes back from the dead and on the lower decks crew are all like, how did you come back from the dead? And they're like, I don't know. Senior officers are always coming back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> and what's like, I'm, I, I like Trek, but I'm not as much of a fan as you are uh, purely. I mean, on a knowledge base level, more than anything, the how does what does Lower Decks do to find that balance between uh, making fun but not not picking, not biting? So it's kind of a loving homage, almost like when they had. I saw that there's a lo- lovely Twitter stream where the writer would just went crazy about when they had freaks in to, and he he did his own voice for Riker, yeah. and that the writer or the animator was just like. I've like this. I had to pinch myself because I've got Jonathan Frakes. I'm animating Jonathan Frakes in Star Trek. And so there's so much love to it. So, how does it strike that balance between being irreverent, but also 
um, not taking the piss out of it? Like, how does it do that? So this might be spoilers for season two, but there's so there's an episode in season two. At the end of season one, one of the main characters gets promoted and transferred off the main ship to, an, to Riker's ship. And the first episode of season two, he's not there on the main ship, the Cerritos. He, um, and you see glimpses of him on Riker's ship, the Titan. And in the second episode, deals entirely with him on the Titan. And it turns out that being on like, instead of being on a ship that specializes in second contact, which in and of itself is a pretty great Star Trek joke. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, but so he's trying, the Titan is this like, uh, it's an every, everything they do is an action adventure movie, right? They're always running and phasering and fighting aliens and doing all this stuff. And the main character feels totally out of place. Because he's used to, he's very much about, you know, 90s Trek, wear the uniform, do the paperwork. You know, the boring stuff is the interesting stuff. And there's a, a lovely moment when he's on this away mission because he, he has some special skill and he's with three other members of the crew of the Titan. And they're all chiding him because he's not this action-oriented character like they are. And he's like, and they're making fun of the Enterprise D specifically, the ship from the next generation in the 90s and he goes in this long speech about how like you know some of the adventures on the d were really boring but that kind of adventure and this kind of adventure are all starfleet you know like they're everything we do is starfleet there's no thing that's not starfleet and he's really just talking about star trek like every version of star trek is oh. still star trek and we take that philosophy and apply it to a bunch of people who really seem to love star trek but also want to make something really funny it just comes together perfectly so what's the um that's really nicely put actually the there's a new show with janeway and uh prodigy the animated prodigy yep. is that going to be what's the angle of this one is this another kind of funny pastiche or is this a bit more of an prodigy action? prodigy is very specifically a kid's show oh okay like it's a show on nickelodeon Oh, it's like, on Nick, is it? It's on Nickelodeon, oh, and it's specifically designed for kids. And it's about kids at Starfleet Academy, from what I understand. Wait, so is Lower Decks not suitable for kids? Uh, Lower Decks is adult humor. Sure. Oh, okay. I want to show it to my kids, though. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole episode where the uh, K-10 doctor, that uh, K-10s are uh, bipedal cat people. <laughs> um, and there's a whole episode where the doctor uh, spends the whole episode in heat. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it's pretty great oh okay all right good to know yeah, yeah. so that's that's very much like star wars yes yeah, so <laughs> i mean that but this is t this reflects many of the conversations we've had about star wars over the years yeah. we end up talking about star trek and that's because star trek doesn't seem beholden to this to one central premise it seems way more open to just trying lots of different things and seeing what sticks. And if it doesn't stick, they'll try something else. Like I mean, that's, that that's, that's true within each series, as it, and it is within the greater canon of Star Trek. Um, I think the great advantage that Star Trek has when we're talking about this kind of thing is that Star Wars is very beholden to Star Wars, to the original trilogy. And Star Trek has always been very beholden to the time in which the, that version of Star Trek is being made. Mm -hmm. um, which is you know why you can sort of forgive all the super advanced technology and discovery that takes place 10 years before the original series where they're using like you know tape drives for packing stuff up uh, yeah. you know um 
Star, 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 Trek, Star Trek is very much about holding a mirror to society. And it can't do that if it's not reflecting current society. So, it's, and, and do, they, do they, is that ever addressed that the tech devolves like in their timeline or do they just not care? Not really. Um, and they never imply that um, the one time that I can specifically remember they do address how the old tech looked is in an episode of Deep Space Nine where they go back in time to the Enterprise. It's an episode called Trials and Tribulations, uh, which is they go back in time and insert themselves into the events around the trouble with Tribbles, which is, of course, a classic original series episode. And they do remark very specifically on the um, aesthetics of the, of the era. <laughs> um, but also, you know, in Enterprise, which is a prequel that is about 100 years before the original series, they just have like memory cards and they call them tapes. You know, it's they just it's kind of like how we we still watch a video, you know, or we tape something off TV, even though we use a PVR. You know, we just so, use the vernacular. And is Enterprise actually worth trawling through these days? Has it aged at all? Is it relevant to the, the larger scope of Trek? I mean, I always really liked Star Trek Enterprise. And uh, in particular, there's been like Star Trek Beyond, the most recent film, actually makes a lot of reference to Enterprise because it concerns, uh, part of it concerns a shift from the same era as Enterprise. Um, and I mean, Enterprise 1 and 2 are kind of slow and a little boring, but seasons 3 and 4 are both great, so. Good stuff. Okay, so um, it, to, to summarize Star Wars Visions, if you like lightsaber fights, like uh, last time I showed, it can be still jewel-droppingly amazing, like a good lightsaber fight. Um, and, and if, if you like, if you like anime, if yep. you like anime, then there's definitely going to be something you like. This, the, yep. the, to be fair, too, it's very well cast. Like that first episode, the one um, that we mentioned, the duel. Mm. Um, uh, who uh, Lucy Liu is the bad guy? Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh um, my god, Lucy Liu in a live action Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so um and in the the one you mentioned, the twins. Um the twins are Alison Brie and Neil Patrick Harris in the Tatooine yeah. Rhapsody, the rock star one. The main character is Joseph Gordon Levitt. Uh, uh, and Tamira Morrison is back as Boba Fett in that one. Right. Yeah. Um in the, the Village Bride, there's a ton of Japanese American uh talent including Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa who you name you probably don't know but I guarantee if you look up his face you'll know who it is uh, Simu Liu is in the Ninth Jedi <laughs> you know uh, Kyle Chandler is in one called T.O.B. One Yeah. Uh, David Harbour is in The Elder so is James Hong uh, like there's lots of great people in this Henry Golding and Jamie Chung and George Takei are all in one called uh, Akakiri uh, there's like it's there's definitely something for you there. It just didn't. Mm -hmm. It's fine. It's fine. Right. It's it's one of those things that like I feel like I should. I see lots of people being very effusive about it online, and I'm just like I don't know that we watched like this is fine. Yeah. Maybe it's just because I'm old, but this is fine. Yeah. Uh, I I'm a massive Star Wars fan. And I feel the same. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. So it's fine. Excellent. So. So from here, we're going to move on to talk about. We're going to move on to the thing we both loved. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say 
at this point, I'm going to invite you to, if you like what you're hearing so far, or if you liked on the episodes, please feel free to give us a like, give us a subscribe, um, rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. Those things help immeasurably. I'm also going to say that if you'd like to help more directly, we of course have Patreon and a Kofi and a PayPal and all of this can be found. Uh, if you go to awesomefriday.ca or more specifically awesomefriday.ca forward slash podcast. And the reason that I'm telling you this now is that we are going to talk about midnight mass and we're probably going to talk for 10 or maybe 15 minutes and we're going to avoid spoilers as much as we can. And then we are going to talk all the spoilers in the world. Now this show is already out on Netflix and uh my one sentence review is you should watch this show <laughs> uh it is probably my favorite thing of the year so far mm-hmm. uh and i think it might be some of mike flanagan's director and writer and creator mike flanagan's best work mm-hmm. uh what do you think simon would you like so, a synopsis? <laughs> yeah why don't you give us a, a spoiler free synopsis of midnight hey, mass it's gonna be quite hard it is going to be, but you watched it like over the last couple of days, and I watched it about ten days ago. So you right. probably have a fresher idea than I do. So um, it opens with a horrific car crash, and it turns you learn very, very early that our protagonist Riley is someone who um, caused this terrible crash when he was drunk and killed a girl, and is sent to prison for four years. And when he gets out of prison, he returns to his family home, which is on this. Pacific, it's established as Pacific Northwest, right? It's you know, Pacific I'm not North- not actually sure. I don't think it really matters. It kind of, no, it feels like a Pacific Northwest island, like a fishing island, 30 miles off the mainland, um, uh, 100 and something people living on there. And yeah. the, thing, the thing about this island is that people have left, people have left and it, and it transpires that this huge fishing island was um, affected by uh, an oil spill and it kind of decimated their um, their sort of quality of life and their money and they're all kind of existing in a space where people are just leaving, just not even selling, just leaving. And you kind of feel like this island's becoming a ghost in itself. So Riley, with with nowhere to turn, comes back to his family home and he's 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 got nothing he's got no money no hope he doesn't really know how to stop how to get out of that slump at all and um he his his the whole island is is very christian and his parents are very christian and in his time in um prison he he has had a lot of time to read as he says and he has read pretty much every holy book and examined it in detail and he's come out of it an atheist um, mm-hmm. And because because he feels like life has because of the things he has done, he um, in a very sort of pragmatic way doesn't believe anymore. He's atheist, so he doesn't want to go to church anymore. And so this is the beginning of the conflict. The church, uh, um, the priest, the monsignor. Uh, the Monsignor is due to arrive back from a trip to the Holy Land, which they chipped in for and sent him off. And, and one of the themes in, in this is that the church and its connected rec centre has more money than anyone else at the island put together because uh, they, they all chipped in when they were paid off by the company that polluted their waters. Uh, but the Monsignor doesn't come back, and in his place is a new Monsignor, uh, Paul 
Hill? Yes. I, is it Paul Hill? I can't Paul, remember his... Paul Hill played right. by... Um, I've got the cast this here. I don't recognize him. Hamish Linklater. Yes. Who, he's definitely been in a ton of stuff. He's yeah, very good. He's, you, like many of these actors, you kind of recognize from stuff. And he's this... Whereas the old Monsignor was this a very old, doddery old man who'd been there just generations and generations. Um, this new Monsignor is, is much younger, and he he tells them that Monsignor um, Pruitt is was taken ill, but he's recovering on the mainland, so he'll be running church for a couple of weeks. And so, the general crux of it is Riley up against his failings, not knowing how to fix any of this, still trying to recover from alcoholism, still trying to move past the guilt of killing this girl. Um, now in a terrible, terrible situation with his parents, his and, dad. And very much struggling with his new faithless existence as well, yeah, I would say. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and and Really, that's all you need as a premise, because really anything to tell you any further development from that point is is something that you should uh, experience firsthand. Until we get into spoilers, that's all you need to know. Yeah. Would, would you agree? What would you add? No, nothing. I mean, the official synopsis reads, um, Midnight Mass tells the tale of a small, isolated community whose existing divisions are amplified by the return of a disgraced young man and the arrival of a charismatic priest. When Father Paul's appearance on Crockett Island coincides with unexplained and seemingly miraculous events, a renewed religious fervor takes hold of the community. But do these miracles come at a price? <laughs> uh, the, uh, and this is spoiler. A, yeah, this <laughs> yes. is a horror, a horror show. Um, and the answer is yes, they do. Yes. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what they are at this juncture because oh. I think they are best discovered on your own. I think Simon is right. I think you should go into the series pretty much with not much more than what we said. Yeah. Um, if you're a fan of horror stuff, then this is going to be for you. If you're a fan of Mike Flanagan's work, and you should be because he does good work, then this is going to be for you as well. Um, and if you're not a fan of horror learn from me because i did not want to watch this i do not like religious horror i think i mentioned this last week i am uh, uh f- for very very obvious straightforward reasons i love horror but religious horror just hits in a very different place and keeps me awake and gives me the gives me the heebie heebie-jeebies um so i can't watch things like the exorcist or, or any kind of possession of insert name here each halloween i just can't watch that stuff Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of reluctantly watched this and that was a week ago and then last night I watched three and a half episodes back to back and finished at midnight and I can safely say as a series, as a piece of art it's one of the best things I've ever seen in my entire life so don't mm-hmm. be put off by the horror label it, there are some horrific scenes it's not particularly scary there's there's maybe one jump square early on which isn't that bad it's definitely creepy it's super oh my god canadian it's really really unnerving and -hmm. it's really really hands on your face i can't believe what i'm watching but i I wouldn't describe it as scary right do you know what i mean no i mean exactly there's a couple of jump scares and most of them are like there's something moving in the woods, you know, that, you know, you look at a still scene and then something moves and you're like, Oh shit. Um, Or, you know, a window gets uh, light gets turned off and there's something in the window type thing. 
Um, but Flanagan is so good at building that ongoing tension. And people who watched The Haunting of Hill House uh, or The Haunting of Bly Manor or, or Dr. Sleep or Oculus uh, or Hush, I mean, anything he's done, are already familiar with that. Um, but one thing this really captures, one thing the whole series really captures is the sort of feeling of being in a place that's dying, being in a small place that's only getting smaller. Um, I, you know, part of me wants to say that I have some experience with that, and I kind of, I kind of don't anymore. Like the hometown that I grew up in is very familiar to this. The series is very familiar to me because I grew up on a small island in the Pacific Northwest, nowhere near as small as Crockett Island in the show but still small and still isolated and still very much of that small town, you know, not quite everyone knows everyone, but most people know most people. Um, and just the connections between those people in the community and just people leaving in particular, young people leaving in the case of where I came from myself included eventually. And this series really captures that sense of, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of dread, but it's also kind of resignation, you know, like it's, uh, there's a real feeling that there's, you know, the people who are going to die there will be the last people there. Um, like Riley's parents who are played by, um, uh, why do I keep forgetting names as soon as um, I Henry, need to say Henry Hen Thomas yeah, and, Henry Chris and completely unrecognizable Kristen Levin. Yeah, who's really, really good. And uh, I hope she gets some stuff for this. Uh, there's no, there's you, you can't say anyone in the show is bad. Yeah. Like everyone is exceptional. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, and I don't want to out my small town as anything, but you know, there's uh, the sheriff in Crockett Island in the show is played by Raul Coley, who is, um, he's British, but he plays, he's, uh, I think he's East Indian. Uh, by descent. Uh, yes. Yeah, he's he a live, he's Punjabi, and he uh, well, he lived here for a while because he used to be on um iZombie, which uh, was, uh, shot, was shot here. Yeah. Um, and as a you know, as a Muslim, he is he clashes somewhat with some of the more devout members of the local community because mm -hmm. as much as they are Christian, they are also prejudiced as only christian people can be against other uh -huh. religions uh -huh. uh, in some of the most uncomfortable scenes in the film or the, in the show are one particular character speaking with him just speaking to him because mm -hmm. she's so awful <laughs> it's just yeah that's the um, thing. there is, there is one particularly awful character and it's not who you think it is yeah and uh okay we won't get spoilers yet yeah um I mean, honestly, I sort of lost my train of thought here. Uh, you should watch the show. That's what I'm saying. Yep. It's the show feel. The show has, is a masterclass in building tension and and maintaining tone. And, so the, yeah. and it's also extremely well written. It's extremely well directed. It's clearly a passion project. Uh, and if mm -hmm. you read, Mike Flanagan has actually been trying to make this series for a long time. And I'm kind of glad it took so long because he's clearly had so much experience as a filmmaker now that I feel like if he'd made it five or 10 years ago, it probably right. wouldn't be as good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as much as I am, you know, 
don't want to deny anyone their passion project, but uh, it's just so good. It's just so good. So the thing that really struck me about this, because again, I went in expecting a, a horror show, is that there is some horror elements. There's some that the main part of the story is horrific in in many different um, definitions of that word, but it's connected with this incredibly acted, written, edited drama, and mm-hmm. the the acting in this is just like. It's so delicate you could break it just by like the the things that the actors give you. There's there is a lot of monologuing in this, particularly in the middle episodes. And and maybe there's I, I have the slightest issue that sometimes a monologue is answered with another monologue. It's anecdote for anecdote. It's like anecdote swapsies. But the um it doesn't matter when everything is this good, like everyone is just mind-blowing. And I've never seen Zach Guilford in anything. Um, I never watched Friday Night Lights, so he was completely new to me. Katie Seagull was completely new to me as well. And these two, uh, the two leads, if you like, who um, who sort of connect everyone together, their, their scenes together are just like, I, I almost wanted them to be real and exist together because they are so perfect together. They make this amazing connection that you really feel. And they're both so hurt by what's happened to them and what and the truth of that kind of comes out slowly and the it's very easy to overact her it's really fucking easy to overact it and they just tread that line perfectly and when they are talking about some stuff particularly in the the latter sort of four episodes where they start really opening up and in the final episode as well there's a a moment of monologue and it's just the most beautiful thing. Like it's something so horrific. It's the most beautiful thing. It really, really is. And um, all of these guys, like I can't say her name, Samantha Sloyan as Bev Keen uh, slides the other way. Like she, she, she finds ice and then she finds fire and it's, she is just incredible. And the, all these actors working together, it was, you know when that you have a good ensemble is when you know who everyone is. You never get lost with who are these people in this story. And I'm looking at the cast list now, and I'm looking across the cast list of three, six, nine, 12, 15, 16 people. And I know absolutely about each of these people. I know about their mm-hmm. lives on the island, how they interact in the story, how, why they're important in the story. And this is an incredible achievement to, to put together an ensemble like this and have them all meaningful components of the story and you know who they are. Like so many films lose me when they start opening up the cast because so many films don't do ensembles well. And it's just mind blowing. The whole, the whole thing was mind blowing, but especially the, the surprise of this is actually a really incredible drama. And the, the drama horror ratio amps up towards the end, as it should. It, it turns the screw and it builds and it builds. And the last episode, there is a snap. And that's fine because it, it has earned it. There's nothing cheap in Midnight Mass at all. But the, the rest of this, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't play any character as evil with a capital E. Like even the characters who are 
antagonistic to the story have justifications. It's the weirdest thing. It is brilliantly, brilliantly done. I will slightly disagree in that I think that the actual villain of the story is actually evil, but um, you're otherwise not wrong. But I, I'm, I'm even going to avoid gender pronouns at this point so we don't spoil anything. But he, even, I was thinking about this at the end as well. The, the, I kept going back to like that saying about the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it was a knowing road to hell for one particular character and still with the intentions of this is a good thing and that's terrifying right there's a famous quote of uh, who said that the uh the scariest thing in the world is someone who is convinced that they're right Mm -hmm. and and this this whole analog of religious meaning as justification for horrific terrible things is the true horror it's just mind-blowing amazing stuff uh yeah i mean i I am having a hard time even trying to speak about this show without spoilers at this point um i will say though what you're talking about with the ensemble especially so there's a couple things that i think are worth mentioning and one is that mike flanagan as a filmmaker is very good at that he's very good at creating an ensemble and making sure that everyone has enough development that you know who each of them are And this series is a great example of this. And The Haunting of Hill House is another great example of this that tracks several characters played by many of whom are played by multiple actors in different timelines. And you will never not lose track of who they are, which is also an achievement. Like there's there's two parents and four kids and they're in two different timelines and you always know which ones are which one is who because it's just so well put together. And the other thing is that Mike Flanagan tends to work with a lot of the same people over and over and over again. And I think yeah. that speaks volumes to, and not just ca- like crew as well, not just cast, but crew as well. Um, but we're going to primarily speak about cast. But a lot of the people he works with are people he works with over and over and over again. And I think that speaks volumes to, you know, the way he tells stories and the way he writes scripts and the way he must be as a director. Um and uh, I think that that might be um, part of what makes this one so good. Yeah. You know, you know we're always yeah. improving as we, as we continue with art, we're always improving. Right. So, yeah. 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 But like you, if you like Zach Guilford, he hasn't actually been in anything Mike Flanagan did before, but he will be in Mike Flanagan's next thing, which is called the midnight club. Oh, what's that? How'd you know about this? Uh, it's already announced. It's uh, an adaptation of a young adult horror series he's adapting for netflix uh so kind of a kid's show he's doing it he's doing a young adult show for netflix which is yeah um but i mean it doesn't matter because i i don't uh, i haven't seen anything else that mike flanagan's ever done and uh the first thing i'm going to do is to change that because technically it's just so spectacular (laughs) it's so spectacularly good that i really just want to see what else he's done as a filmmaker well, I can tell you that um, Hush is good. Oculus is good. Hush is good. Ouija Origin of Evil is weirdly good. Um, Gerald's Game is uh, one that I feel ashamed I haven't seen, but The Haunting of Hill House, Doctor Sleep, The Haunting of Bly Manor, and Midnight Mass, which came out in that order over the last four years, are four of my favorite things of each of those four years. All right. 
That's a strong recommendation. I'm going to get on that. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. So, so we should we should expand on uh, this with some spoilers, don't you think? I think we've gone as far as we can without spoiling it. I mean, there's only only so many ways that we can say it's good. Go watch it. So yeah. <laughs> it's it's good. Go watch it. Uh, and unfo- unfortunately, some of the more deeper reasons why it's so good, it would be spoilers. And and honestly, it's so nice getting uh, preview stuff sometimes because you're you've never had anything spoiled on social media. And the worst thing that could happen is if someone tells you what happens in this before you watch it, mm-hmm. because there is the the shock of revelation with a capital R. is is truly one that you should savor and Uh, and it's not don't worry if you don't be put off by the religious horror side it's religion as an allegory rather than a religious horror i think but um i mean it's it's a it's a horror story with religion it's it's not about the religion it's about the 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 series is ultimately about faith and not religion specifically or the misuse of religion yeah. yeah 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 so, okay good so we so, are going to count down i think to you talking about spoilers if you've listened to this point yeah. and you have and you have seen the series uh i will invite you to keep listening because we're going to keep yeah. talking but if you if you haven't seen the series you should pause us here uh yeah. and come back again after you've seen the series because you definitely shouldn't and I feel like we're just repeating ourselves ad nauseum here, but you definitely shouldn't be spoiled for this. Just go watch it. It's only seven episodes. Yeah. Simon it's watched seven. it in a week. I, my wife and I watched it in two nights. Um, <laughs> and we actually didn't even plan to. It was just so good that we watched the first four in one night and the, and the last three in the second night. Yeah. Yeah. Pause here. Have a look at the time code. Go away for seven hours and then come back and listen. Yeah. That's the best way you could do it. And uh, if you're leaving now, thank you for listening and we'd love you. And if you're staying now, thank you for living. Thank you for staying and <laughs> listening. For, and we love you. Thank you for living. Thank you for, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I that's got, important too. I got ahead of my train of thought. So, <laughs> so saying that I'm tired. I'm tired. Yeah, but let's talk about Midnight Mass. Okay, so spoilers in three, two, one. Good. So, uh, <laughs> a more a more detailed synopsis would be that Riley returns home after four years in prison and he's lost his faith in that time. He actually loses his faith. The, the start of it is in the first scene of the, of the series where he's been in this terrible accident and killed this girl. And he starts reciting the Lord's prayer and the paramedic who's treating him is like, then why doesn't the Lord works in mysterious ways? Like, why doesn't he ever kill you rich assholes? Uh, and from that point, his faith evaporates. Um, Father Paul returns home, or Paul Hill returns home from to cover for the Monsignor who's left, and he returns home with a giant crate, and he is comparatively a firebrand. And as he begins to minister to this small population, miraculous things start happening. Some of it isn't really spoilers. If you've watched the trailer for this, you know that a girl who's paralyzed gets up and walks. Um, everyone in the town seems to have more vim and vigor and there's a real resurgence of religion within the community as a result of all of this mm-hmm. um, as the show goes on you realize you know when the question comes up 
does all of this have a price? The answer is very much yes. But maybe we should discuss the end of this. Maybe we should discuss the beginning, the middle of the end of this separately. We might be able to do. What do you think? I don't know. How much do you uh, want to? I th uh, we should just cut to the chase. Yeah. Like there's there's this is one of those shows where things are hinted, and then at the end when things are revealed, everything else makes sense. So if we're going to make sense of this and tell you why you should go watch it with spoilers or or analyze, not why you should watch it, but why it's worked so well, I think we just need to dive straight in. Right. So. So it turns out. So I mean, I don't even, I don't even want to say it though. Okay, like... I'll say it. I'll say it because I just want to. I want to hear myself say it. So the it turns out that Monsignor Paul Hill is the uh, uh, invigorated, reborn, not literally, but reused, if you like, the, um, Monsignor Pruitt. Pruitt. So this yeah. old, this old old man who went to the Holy Land. And it turns out he he had terrible dementia, got lost in the desert in this terrible storm, finds something in a cave. And this thing uh, um, uh, changes him. <laughs> I'm still trying to dance around it. And he thinks this thing, this thing with wings in a cave who changes him with blood, he thinks this is like St. Paul on the road to Damascus. This is his angel. To, uh, giving him God's blessing to spread God's blessing. So he packs that angel up. It's it's, it's glossed over because otherwise you start thinking about international shipping uh, policies. But he, he packs up this angel in a big old trunk and brings it to this island because he wants to spread this new covenant, this new message from God. Now, if you're listening to this <laughs> and going, um this really really sounds like it's a vampire story it's because it's a vampire story but we've come to the conclusion that in this universe they must not have vampires because they never well, they this never ever talk yeah, about it in this universe they must it must exist in such that vampires were culturally a rarity because they never say that the show never says the word vampire yeah all of the hallmarks are there it's the real the the main like the angel is very much a Nosferatu with leathery bat wings and pale skin and claws. And it's very animalistic, um, but also clearly very old. And, yeah. but they never call it a vampire. And, no. at, you know, in the middle of the series, when they're starting to figure out that maybe something weird is going on and the town doctor who's played by Annabeth Gish, who's amazing. We'll come back to her later. I think um, she discovers that if she puts, you know some blood that's been affected by this angel in the sun it burns yes. <laughs> and they still never say like vampire. No. they never yes. say it, ever <laughs> I know. it's uh and it's fine it does it maybe it sounds more ridiculous saying it like this but it, it actually works fine because they are so stunned by this slow re revelation that they have this being among them who is Terrifying. And remember, like a lot of the, the story is uh, told in parallel to Bible verses. And so when they see when the, the larger townspeople start being exposed to this quote unquote angel, it's paired with Father Pruitt reminding them that in the Bible, aliens are terrifying. Everyone was terrified when they saw an alien. And so it's right. An, an angel. It's right there. An angel. Uh, sorry, sorry. Angel. Where's the alien come from? Um, we're so, both tired that's where it came from like and that really categorizes a lot of the horror in this is that it is 
referred back to the Bible and um, manipulated just like religion has been manipulated to do these horrific things. Um, I also think it works because the show really, really takes its time to reveal, like you don't even see the angel itself until episode three. And that's only a shadow. Like it's not until... Is it three or four? It might even be four. In the cave, it's... What is the episode? So there's an no, episode where... where... Four is the monologue one, isn't it? So there's a... Uh, it's four is... There's an ep- Hang on. Let's see if it's... I think it's cave in three in shadow. And then in episode five, that's when Riley so, comes yeah. back to the rec center. And that's when you truly see yeah, this so horrific it, beast. It, Episode three, which is called Proverbs, is the episode where Father Paul uh, tells the story of Monsignor Pruitt going to the Holy Land through confession, which is very effective. Uh, And through the course of the episode, it's revealed that not only was he attacked by this being and given... um, was basically that Monsignor Pruitt goes to the Holy Land, gets lost, gets bitten, and is reinvigorated. And in fact, Father Paul is young Monsignor Pruitt. Which lots of people don't pick up on, but some people do pretty pretty quickly. Um, episode four has uh, a number of things happen in it, but it actually ends with Riley being attacked by mm-hmm. the angel. Yeah, um, that's when you see it properly, and, it? and it's also when you finally put together. And I think if you, I, I'm desperate to rewatch the show. I'm way too busy to do it, but I'm desperate to rewatch it because part of the reason the slow build works is that even though you don't see the angel putting blood into a decanter to be used in communion at the church until the end of episode four, Mm -hmm. which is established to be like the whole episode is not like each one is a day. Like there's a couple of montages that make it clear that this is going on for weeks and months, but also like at one point Riley's mother just realizes that she doesn't need her glasses anymore. And there's a, a, a lovely scene uh, of Riley's mother and father, again played by Henry Thomas and uh, Kristen Lehman, where he just puts on a record and they dance together. And it's implied that it's the first time that they have, or maybe that he's even been able because of his bad yeah. back yeah. in years. And people around town very slowly, the people who are going to church anyway, very slowly become, you know, more vigorous and more youthful. But it's never called out. Like it happens very slowly. Yeah. And I feel like a second watch will make make a close watch very rewarding as a result. Yeah, definitely. No, that was my thought when I finished. Like that, I can imagine now when I rewatch it, there's going to be loads more clues. Now I know their clues yeah. buried in that narrative as to where it was going in the final, and the. The, uh, the build-up to the climax is really mostly done because I think the um, they go through a period of hopelessness before the 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 uh, Aaron played by Katie Seagal, Aaron is, witnesses Riley, um, who has after his attack he's come back as uh, as a vampire, and so he he shows her the danger that she's in in a truly unforgettable way and she then becomes the the protagonist in fact maybe she was the protagonist all along and the 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 last two episodes and particularly the last one but the last two it sort of transforms 
from this drama, like it's done all the legwork now. And then you have that snap at the end where they're desperately trying to stop this thing from not just happening on the island, but spreading off the island. And um, it's incredibly emotive. That last episode, there's a couple of moments that are like stand up hands over your face because this is so good moments. And it's really interesting how there's some very um, carefully placed action cues in there as well as people start to fight back. Like it's, it's incredibly um, compelling to watch. Uh, yeah, all of this is true. Um, it's also just as we were talking about, it's super effective. So the, in the third episode is revealed that Monsignor Pruitt went to Damascus and came back a young man after he was bitten by this creature, by this angel. In the fourth episode, Riley is attacked. And in the fifth episode, there is a long series of monologues between Father Paul, Father Monsignor Pruitt, and Riley, where the Monsignor really does make it clear that he believes that the longevity granted by this blood is a gift from God and that the, you know, the vampiric traits that they've inherited from the blood are also like, so he, I think he even goes so far as to say that like, that they are like, um, uh, what am I trying to say? That they are like marks of God's favor. Right. Right. Um, and Bev Keen played by, played by Samantha Sloyan, who is just incredible as the oh. town's, holier than thou most pious lady Bev yeah. Keen um, who if you've ever lived in a small town you know every town has one yeah um, at that point she she figures it out before anyone else uh, what's going on because mm -hmm. she finds a picture of young Monsignor Pruitt and puts it together but she buys into his idea that this is an angel immediately and with great fervor <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and to the point where when Riley is bitten and he's fully transformed into a vampire, which no one else in the town has been, they've been being fed to the vampire's blood and gaining some, again, some vigor back as a result, but none of them are being turned yet. And when Riley is turned first, she's visibly upset because she is so pious and so holier than thou. And just, uh, what I'm trying to say is that all of this very overt twisting of circumstances to fit religious belief mm. is super upsetting yeah and it's exactly the kind of thing that you see you know from extremists in the real world yeah um and it's just and it's super upsetting and it's pretty well done and well. it's really well it's, executed. It's, it's believable it's really believable so it's not sensationalized the the element of the islamic sheriff and his son um trying to stop this christian-based contagion is done very delicately it's done very very well and you're you're right the actress who played bev uh samantha sloan is this uh absolute obsessed with goodness evil person like who does evil terrible things and it's all through like piety this like feeling that you are better than everyone else. And there is a wonderful moment where she's called out on that. 
And still to the end, it's interesting that every other character who has turned to a darkness finds their way back towards the last, before the last beat of what happens, including Father Pruitt, who has this just the, the uh, who's the actor? Who's Father Pruitt? Um, we mentioned Hamish, Hamish later. So some revelations come out in the last episode about um, his connection with a couple of other characters. And, and we learn his ultimate aim for doing all this. And, and it's heartbreaking. And you see him, um, like I mentioned to you earlier, Matt, I, I was kind of expecting him to go full evil. Like, this is the God's thing to do. We must push and push. But he actually has this wonderful soft end where he's like, this is wrong. All of this is wrong. We were wrong from the beginning. This is not the way it should have gone. And yeah. Bev, Bev at the end, Bev's the only one at the end. And I love that final shot where she's crying on the beach and you think that she's regretting everything. But and she's... in a moment of frenzy, she tries to dig herself into the sand like an animal because she's not... She's scared of dying, not because she did these terrible things, but because she feels like she should live. And it's just like mind blowing that that watching her like like an animal dig into the sand, like screaming before she dies. Yeah, it really. It's, it's really affecting. And especially, I mean, in that moment in the final episode, we've already had Monsignor Pruitt basically say that the whole reason he did this was to reconnect with I hate to spoil this aspect of it, but like mm-hmm. his reasons for doing it are heartbreaking. It turns out later that he had an illicit relationship and one of the main characters is his child. And he did all of it just to have a chance at being a family with them that he never had before. And there's a, a wonderful moment where the woman he had the relationship with basically says, yeah, but that's just not how it's supposed to be. You know, we're supposed to fade and they're supposed to continue. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's beautiful. I love that part. That was yeah. so that was and, one of sorry, carry on. And then, you know, as Bev Keen is, you know, in her hubris, she burns the homes of the people who didn't take the communion, who didn't become, you know, turned into this vampiric monster. Mm-hmm. And of course, in her hubris, the whole town burns down. Because mm-hmm. of course it does, because she she's that extremist, right? Like Monsignor Pruitt realizes this was wrong. We were mm-hmm. wrong for the beginning. And she's like, oh, I thought it was you, but it's me, you know, yeah, like, yeah, it's um, and she's ultimately the villain of the picture, but then her, she's undone by her own pride and her own hubris. And in trying to punish, she's not in it because she believes she's blessed. She's in it because she wants to punish those she believes unworthy. Mm-hmm. And then in doing so, she causes her own undoing, which is sort of beautiful. It really is, and natural. It feels like, and nothing feels like a pantomime. Nothing no. feels like it's overplayed. And one of the things that I think Mike Flanagan, as a writer and a director, is quite good at is subverting your expectations. And I think he does two things in the series. One of which you've already mentioned, and that is that it would be very easy for a story like this to have the priest, to have Monsignor Pruitt or Father Paul, whatever you want to call him at the end just go full vampire just turn into another nosferatu and be the villain and in not doing that i think the film the whole series is better for it yeah oh uh, unquestionably absolutely yeah. the other thing he does that he that i think is one probably the most successful subversion in the show 
And I have gone back and watched this particular scene a number of times, and it never doesn't leave me in tears, is the end of episode five. And this is when, so Riley is bitten by this vampire and turned at the end of episode four, and he spends most of episode five monologuing back and forth with the Monsignor, and then taking a long, sort of night, long dark night of the soul, you know, taking in his new senses as a vampire, seeing the world in ways that he's never seen it before. And then he takes um, uh, Kate Siegel's character, Aaron, out onto a boat. Because they were, one thing we sort of glossed over is that they were young loves when they were teenagers, you know. And he takes her out on a boat and he tells her the whole story of what happened to him. Like the whole story, he takes her out on the boat almost immediately. And episode five is pretty much entirely him telling her what has happened to him. And as he finishes the story, and they've been out on this boat all night, and she says, so you're telling me that you've been bitten by a monster that gives you an insatiable thirst for blood, and you've taken me out in a boat where I have nowhere to go. And he says, no, you misunderstand. We're out on this boat because so that, so that I wouldn't have anywhere to go. And he delivers this beautiful monologue about how much he loves her and about how much he just wants her to run and leave and live her life and be safe but he knows that she's not going to do that unless she has incontrovertible proof of what's going on and as he's saying all this the sun is coming up Mm -hmm. it's just like it's such a devastating moment they have Mm -hmm. a talk earlier in the series i can't remember if it's episode two or three where they both discuss what they think is going to happen when you die Oh, that's the amazing monologue episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and his whole thing, he says, when I die, because he's no longer, he doesn't have any faith anymore. So he says, when I die, you know, my brain releases all these hormones and neurotransmitters. And for whatever amount of time, I'm just dreaming and I'm seeing whatever I need to see to be comforted before I die. And in the moment that the sun comes over the horizon, so another sorry, another thing for context, he's haunted by the woman that he killed. Every night when he goes to sleep, he sees her in his room, covered in blood, illuminated by police lights, like haunted. And then as the sun comes up, it hits his face and he opens his eyes and the woman is sitting there and she takes his hand and he has a beautiful moment of forgiveness for himself i would say and then it just cuts immediately back to kate siegel screaming like a deep animalistic scream as riley bursts into flames and 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 just it subverts the whole idea of who the protagonist is Mm -hmm. and it's a devastatingly executed moment yeah. that I am welling up a little bit just thinking about, to be totally honest. And, yeah, no, absolutely. And the that that gut punch at the end of Katie Siegel's um, amazing reaction to what she's seeing is then carried over over the credits. The other credits have silence or music, and the, this is just her with the boat sounds howling. And yeah. it is, in like, incredible... Uh, make sure you pick, have the remote control in your hand because Netflix really wants you to not watch credits, which is another point entirely that I don't want to get into now. But make sure you tell it not to go on to the next episode and just listen to those credits because it is 
it is the, the perfect coda to that moment. And, and for me, my, my version of that, like I love that part, but for me, um, it's the end of the final episode where, spoiler, well, we're in spoiler town, she, she's dying, she's being fed on and she's dying. And, yeah. and she describes, um, she cuts back to, in her memory, this um, conversation that she had about the nature of death, what happens when you die. And she, she always talked about um, her, her, her unborn daughter because she, she was pregnant and then through, through the circumstances, suddenly this baby disappears, but that's a, a, another plot. But she this time talks about herself and she gives this amazing final realization about all in this beautiful monologue about how there's no such thing as myself. We're just cell, we're, we're atoms, the same as everything else around us, atoms from the stars, and it, we are the universe experiencing itself, the universe having a little dream before returning back to its usual state. And it, that was really affecting for me as well because I I have a very I, I wrote a short story involving it once but when I when my son was born I had a very similar moment of holding him and kind of just feeling and it was just the realization about um, umbilical cords and 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 the scars we have in our bellies stretching up like, up like like tree vines all the way up through humanity how we're all connected and then just this idea of the universe connecting us all and I've I've always found it very very hard to put in to words how I felt that moment that night and watching that monologue I was like this is it this is exactly how I felt and mm -hmm. it's just another example of the quality of writing and and the quality of its philosophy as well it, it's not it wasn't hackneyed it wasn't didn't hit you over the head it didn't demand you believe anything it was just about the beauty of life. And at the end, after seeing so many horrific things, especially in that final episode, it to end on such a moment of beauty was really staggering for me. Mm -hmm. I also, and I'm not a big hymn guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but I also really enjoyed, there's a recurring motif that is the fairly you know classic hymn, Near My God to Thee. And it's so affecting towards the end everyone's turned into either turned into a vampire or become food for one of these vampires and everyone in the town sort of regains their humanity at the end as the sun is rising and accepts their fate that the sun is going to rise and there's nowhere to go while singing this hymn and i'm not a religious person but like that is a powerful moment <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the whole thing um and the whole end for Aaron for Keith Siegel's character is another one that it also it pays off that same conversation earlier where they speak about the nature of death um, how she feels about it and it pays off another series episode where she speaks about how her mother when she was a child made her to hold these birds that were she was going to clip their wings that her mother was going to clip her wings and she's the one who you know the vampire the main vampire the angel starts feeding on her and she ends up holding it there, letting it feed on her so she can damage its wings enough that it can't get away. And even just that sort of silent connection, which is no one, no one like points it out, neither does she, but like it's it's a, a nice, powerful callback. There's no yeah. part of the show that isn't basically 
perfectly set up and executed. Yeah, and that's the I, the thing about um, these these little uh, moments that if you know their hints for the future, then then they they are meaningful. But when you watch them the first time, it's quite difficult to do things like this that are subtle enough that you don't go, okay, this this will be a relevant point in the future. And all of the moments that there's that fantastic moment where you realize when she's cutting through the wings, you're like, oh my God, it's that. And because when she talked about the wing clipping, it was part of a uh, three or four shared monologues that was really buried as one of the stories. And then it, for it to be so relevant right at the end, it was just a beautiful bit of um, parallel storytelling. Mm-hmm. That parallel works great. So yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. And I, you know, I feel like we've talked a lot about the show and we can probably talk for ages, but I do actually just want to highlight, um, cause I feel like her, her, We've been sort of avoiding talking about Monsignor Pruitt and his connections to the to the village because I, I think that's the right thing to do because they're very powerful. Um, but there is a character who very dramatically deages, and uh, Annabeth Gish plays the local doctor who's observing all of this, but not necessarily taking communion all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and she, her presence in the series, I feel, is also pretty integral integral um as the not exactly doubting thomas but definitely as the voice of reason and science who is looking at the things that are happening around her and saying what (laughs) like how do i begin as a doctor and a scientist how do i begin to explain this Mm -hmm. how do i begin to make any of this make sense to anyone and i think that her her presence as that sort of uh, of skepticism lends more weight to everyone who buys it immediately. Yeah. Everyone whose religious faith is restored so strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's the only one who ever, you know, she's probably the first one to really question if it's good, you know, like it's, it's, yeah. uh, and, and she is, I've always sort of liked Annabeth Fish. She's fairly reliable, but like she's excellent in the show. Mm-hmm. And some of the her scenes where she has to deliver news to some of her patients around town are just also devastating. You know, it's. I know we've said that everyone in the show is good, but everyone in the show is really good. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, just amazing. Yeah, and I mean, similarly, uh, Rahul Kohli is the Muslim sheriff, who's also a very complicated three dimensional character, whose son is. Not like peer pressured is probably the wrong word, but ends up being pressured into going to church and taking communion. And his reaction as a Muslim man watching his son turn towards Catholicism is also super interesting. And the way that they reconnect at the end is, I thought, fairly beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. The, as, as that final moment of connection, again, beautifully set up, beautifully executed, and not. Um, not weird or strange, like completely believable and uh, made sense in the larger context of what was going on. Yeah. So. Uh, and, and there's loads, you know, there's there's loads about the story we haven't even touched on, like the um, the guilt felt by one of the islanders for paralyzing a young girl while he fights with his alcoholism. 
um, the the oh, I mean, the best balance. If you want to talk about Robert Longstreet uh, playing Joe Col- Joe Colley, the the village drunk, yeah. he is so good. Uh, he's another one of those recurring players in Flanagan's sort of cohort. He was in. Um, uh, he was in the Haunting of Hill House. He was in Doctor Sleep. Um, he's he's been in a number uh, of things, and he is always good. Yeah, yeah. He he lends a real um, what am I trying to say? A real gravity to those sort of the, the yeah. monologues he has to give mm-hmm. with his gravelly voice are just excellent. <laughs> Uh, and there's a beautiful moment where it's it's revealed that you know there's a young woman who's paralyzed and she's paralyzed in a quote air quotes hunting accident when Joe Colley was drunk. And there's a moment after she restores, she's regained her ability to walk where she comes to him and she's she gives up again another beautiful monologue <laughs> where she lets him know that she is still angry but that she forgives him and he makes it clear that he can never forgive himself. Um, but then begins to try and work on himself at least but that whole scene is just again not heartbreaking but just so uh, emotionally deep and affecting I can't uh, I mean I could just I could just talk about this show we could do a whole other episode just about this show we really could it's so deep there's so much to it there's so much to recommend about it and there's so much to 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 dissect because it's such an incredible piece of storytelling on so many different levels um but i if if you've come to the spoiler section i really hope you've seen it first so i hope this rings true but even if you you've listened to this and you haven't seen it still go watch it even though you know everything that's going to happen now, because the the just marvel in how this story is told, and uh, in, in how subtly and how delicately, even with the horrors that it gives you, the the uh, aside from the incredible technical level that you're watching, the uh, the editing and the the framing and the continuity is just amazing. Just the way that it's paced, the way it's told, if you've got any interest in how to tell a story um, in film, or, or well, I mean, film or TV, then I, I can't recommend this enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, neither can I. It's clearly, you know, every year I will publish a list of my top films of the year, but this will be, whatever I say is my favorite film of the year, this is probably going to be my favorite thing of the year. yeah. Um, I, I would I would be quite shocked if something better comes along this year. There's a, I don't I don't know if you read it, but if you um, so there's when, you, when we got access to this, there's a a note from Mike Flanagan, uh, part of which is just asking. There's a few things that pre-release, um, and to be clear, we're good because now it's post-release of the show. Uh-huh. Um, but asking not to not to reveal a number of things. Um, as spoilers um, but the note also makes it clear that how, how personal this uh, show yeah. is to him and how much of a passion project it is to the point where um, if you watch his film Hush there's a character with a novel and that novel is Midnight Mass and that book is on the shelf in his movie Gerald's Game uh, oh. you know it's this has been something he's been thinking about and wa- wanting to make for a very long time. 
Yeah, yeah. And the, I think there's a, a sort of a great quote where um, uh, when people on set asked me what Midnight Mass was, speaking about making Hush or Gerald's Game, when people on set asked me what Midnight Mass was, I smiled and told them it was the best thing I never made. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad, I'm honestly really happy just like i'm happy that it's a great thing and i love it but i'm actually really happy for him that he got to make it and that it turned out so well yeah yeah me too i wonder what was holding it back well because he said it's been gestating for 10 years so he's obviously been successful making other things i wonder why this took so long i don't know um it probably has something to do with being so original it's not an adaptation of anything else which much of his a lot of his work is um and also just timing you know maybe it was never the right time yeah uh and maybe it was never the right time just in terms of his technical ability or his cohort of collaborators or just in his personal life you know i know that uh he's uh three years into sobriety as well which I'm sure oh, has really? given him a, a lot to think about. I know, Interesting. Um, three years, four years? Anyway. Um, it, yeah, it's, you know, the end of the, no, of the letter reads, where is it? Uh, I'm just going to read you two paragraphs. Uh, so the darkness that animates the story isn't hard to see in our world, unfortunately. We see it in religious and political fundamentalism, in tribalism and racism, in science denial, in systemic corruption, and the eyes of normal citizens moved to acts of violence and horror by belief systems that have exploited their prejudices, fears, and blind faith. It speaks to a malignant insanity that has become absolutely normalized in our world. And as Carl, Carl Sagan said, there's, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It's about something else as well faith itself one of the great mysteries of human nature how even in the darkness even in the worst of it in the absence of light and hope we sing oh that makes <laughs> sense how nice is that yeah uh, well that's a perfect way to we should end there because we've been talking for ages yeah and that is a perfect note to finish on and it makes me really happy to know that uh, that was said and and to have heard it now after i've seen it all that's really yeah. beautiful i'm also super glad that you got to uh, you should read that letter i'll send it to you if you don't have it already but uh, yeah i don't i don't have that yeah do send it to me uh but it's uh i'm i'm glad that you didn't hear any of it before the show because the yeah. list of spoilers would have been a big deal yeah yeah definitely so but so this is gonna push me into watching the rest of my trial again. So where do I start? Do I start with Doctor Sleep? I don't think there's a bad place to start, to be okay. totally honest. I I still need to watch Gerald's game. I think that my uh, wife has watched it, but I haven't. Uh -huh. Um I think that his next best thing is probably at least my next favorite thing of his is probably the haunting of Hill House. It's The Haunting of Hell House or Dr. Sleep. It's one of those two. Um, but The Haunting of Blind Manor is great. Oculus is great. Hush is great. Hush is probably the scariest one of all those. Um, Oculus is probably the least scary. Or maybe not. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's tough. Okay, I'll go with that. It's, one. It's, it's, it's tough. I would just start watching his stuff, basically. 
would be where I would go with it. If there's a reason he's become like I didn't know anything about Midnight Mass the first time I heard about it, but when I heard it was him making it, I was like, okay, that's a thing I'm going to watch. That's just where I'm at with him now. Right. And now that I know he's making he's making a young adult show called called Midnight Club that we talked about earlier, and I'm just going to watch it because he's making it. Yeah. No, I I'm I feel the same now. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Well, I think we should call it there. Um, yeah. Thank you ever so much for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you. Um, really do. If you want to find more about this or anything else on the site, just head straight to awesomefriday.ca. The podcast is available on most platforms where you're probably, hopefully, listening to this. And uh, yeah, we're gonna have <laughs> so. Uh, so I mean, honestly, I'm I'm still a little emotional just thinking about the show. Yeah. So I'm I'm pretty desperate yeah. to watch it again. So thank you for listening. Go watch Midnight Mass. Go enjoy it, and um, we will talk to you in one week with more exciting film opinions. <laughs> it's very true. Thank you, everybody, and we'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.